1 John chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 5 through 10, the end of the chapter, and then actually jumping into chapter 2 a little bit as well. Um, I've debated about whether or not I should talk about the elephant in the room, um, which is my t-shirt. Um, for those of you who may not recall, and it's okay if you haven't, um, go back several months and you can find a sermon that Justin preached where he fabricated a sloth while I was preaching and said I was um, dishonoring the sermon, dishonoring the message by having a sloth with me on stage. And if you don't recall that, it's fine. It was his lightful joke playing at me. It was a message about technology, a sermon about how we could use technology to deceive things. And uh, he threw that out there. So I told him the next time that I preached, I would be wearing a shirt that had a sloth on it. I actually had forgotten about that, but thankfully Elizabeth didn't. So in the mail this week came a t-shirt with a sloth on it. So if you're wondering why is Pete wearing a colorful sloth, that is why. Um, I, was, I was tempted to kind of weave slothfulness into the sermon and just see if anybody picked up on it, but I was like, I'm not that creative. Um, I need a different mind for that. So just send it out there to begin. But we are going to be in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, and let's, let's read it together. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A few weeks ago, I had family in town. My brother and my sister were both visiting. All of their children were with us as well. And rather than sitting around the house, see, I could have given it in here. Rather than sitting around the house being slothful, <laughs> we decided we were going to go do something adventurous. We were going to go take a hike through the woods, and so I took... My brother, his wife, my brother-in-law, their children, and we went to walk through Boys Park. Just a quick hike through the woods, nothing special, nothing fancy. And we did all the normal things that you would do on a hike. We picked up big sticks, you take a leaf and you, you know, tickle your niece's face to think there's a bug on her face. That was my, my action throughout the whole entire trip. We went at a pretty good pace, everyone was moving along fine, and we were just wandering through, and it happened to be a trail through Boyce Park that none of us were familiar with. But it's Boyce Park. How complicated can it be? And we're walking along, and eventually we stopped, and we, we kind of asked the question, like, does anyone know where we are? Does anyone know how to get back? I mean, we probably could have traced our way back. It would have been fine. But we were kind of like, I don't know really where we are. Our plan was to just take a big, giant loop back to the parking lot where we were, and we would find our way back there soon enough. And eventually we were like, well, 
Okay, we, we've been going right for a long time. So maybe if we just start going left, we'll eventually find our way and, and make our way back. So we head, we head back and we're, we're walking along and everyone's kind of, not really worried, but just somewhat like, are we heading in the right direction? My nephew, of course, has to go to the extremes of things and he goes, well, you know, we might be stuck out in the woods. We're gonna get lost in the woods and then he asks the, the pertinent question, will any bears eat us? <laughs> like, that's a valid question. So now you're thinking, all right, we're, we may be lost in the woods. I didn't think we were lost, but we may be lost in the woods. We could get stuck out here all night, and according to my nephew, we may end up getting eaten by a bear in the woods. About 30, 45 minutes go by, we make our way around, and eventually we get back to the parking lot, we get back to the cars. And while, again, we were never really worried we were lost, there was always this just lingering thought in the back of your head of, Am I headed in the right direction? Are we on the right path? Are we making the right decisions? We were definitely uncertain at different points in time. And as you can imagine, where you have uncertainty, you eventually have doubt. And where you have doubt, you will eventually have confusion. And where you have confusion, you eventually have wrong decisions being made. And where you make wrong decisions, like my nephew's concern was, you end up stuck in the woods being eaten by a bear. And that's not what we would want. And if you're not really a hiker and you're like, I don't like the woods, I don't care for the woods, I stick to concrete, you've probably experienced this same thought yourself. Imagine yourself driving around in an area that you're unfamiliar with. Imagine doing it when there's no GPS even, and even if you have a GPS, you're still unsure of where to go. You kind of have a general idea, you know where you want to be at, you know your destination but you're not sure of the best route, so you take some wrong turns, you head in the wrong direction, you get on the wrong street, you're not watching the street signs carefully, you head the wrong way on a one-way street. The whole time there's this uncertainty, am I doing the right thing? You know where you wanna end up, but you're just not really sure how to get there. You're not really sure if you're heading in that direction. And unfortunately for many of us, this is really how the Christian life feels sometimes. In faith, we trust the gospel. We believe that we are eternally secure in Christ. Chris preached that just a few weeks ago, that nothing can separate us. Nothing can pluck us out of the hand of God. We know that our destination is secure. We know that heaven awaits us. We will be in the presence of God. But when we live our lives now, there's just this lingering thought in the back of our heads of, ah, do I really know for sure? Am I certain we make wrong turns. We question whether or not we're on the right path in this Christian life. We're confused about the right way to live as Christians, and ultimately we're just afraid that we're lost. And see, the, the book of 1 John is written specifically to address that question, specifically to address that thing. And what I want us to be clear about as we dig into the contents of 1 John and we get into the passage today and the rest of the book is this. If we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of our sins, we can have full confidence in the gospel. We can have full confidence that the gospel is true for us. We can have full confidence that eternal life is for us. 
We can have full confidence that the destination of heaven with the Father, Son, and Spirit is secure for us. We can have 100% confidence that that's the case. And not only this, we can live now with that same confidence. Not confused, not uncertain, not wandering around like we're lost in the woods or driving around trying to find where to go. And we know this because 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says these words. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That is the entire purpose of why John's writing this book. So if you've ever doubted, am I a Christian? Am I sure that I am saved? Am I sure that I am in Christ? This book is for you. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us at one point in time in our lives has had that lingering thought, am I actually on the right path? Am I sure that this is real for me? John writes his entire letter for that point, and so we, we learned about last week, Chris explained through John's apologetic for the deity of Christ, that the, the word Jesus was from the beginning. They've handled him, they've touched him, they've heard the things that he said John wrote all those things so that we might know that we have eternal life. When we read John's letter, his intention, though, is not for us to grow discouraged in the Christian life. His intention is for us to be certain, to not doubt. His desire is that we grow confident in the God who saves us, confident in the God who keeps us, confident in the God who secures us until the end. So if the letter is about us knowing that we have eternal life, I think we might assume then that this letter is all about us. It's all about me. It's all about you. It's all about the ways that we know that we are Christians based on the things that we've done and based on our actions. But yet you come to verse 5 in 1 John chapter 1, and he says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. The reality for the Christian life and the ability for us to have confidence that we are assured of our faith and that we are assured of eternal life is not because we look internally at ourselves, primarily and first, it's that we look outward to God first. And that's where John starts. He doesn't come along and say, well, you can be assured that you have faith, you can be confident in your faith because look how you live. And that's the measure, that's the only measure for your assurance of faith. He will get into some of that as we get into the book of 1 John, looking at the good things that we do, but he ultimately starts with God. It's a simple yet remarkable thing because we live in a culture that does not and will not start with God. Think of, think of what our culture champions right now. It's the self. It's us. It's a man-centered view of how we live in this world. And it exalts the self as this supreme arbiter of what's true and what's right. So how do we know what's right? How do we know what's true? You just look to yourself. So that's why you can hear people say things like, well, this is my truth. And then we're supposed to accept that and we're supposed to 
align to that and say, well, we have to respect that. That's their truth. That's their reality. And it should be treated as reality. That's what the culture wants to tell us to do. And so it's significant when John writes the words about living a Christian life and being assured of Christian faith when he says, we're not going to start with us. We're going to start with God. Because God is the foundation and the center of our faith. Without God, there is no salvation. There is no confidence in a future hope. There is no fellowship with him. And if we walk in faith, looking first and primarily at ourselves for assurance of our faith, what we'll be left with is doubt. What we'll be left with is confusion. We'll make wrong decisions. And instead of being stuck in the woods, eaten by a bear, we're lost in sin and under the judgment and the wrath of God. That's the consequence of looking primarily and first at ourselves and saying, well, I do all of these good things, so I must be a Christian. I must be assured of my faith without ever looking to God as the foundation and the center of our faith. So we have to start with God because that's where John starts with God. But it's interesting because when we consider where we might start, if you were writing this book yourself, where you might start, you'd say, God is going to be the center of this. He's going to be the, the focal point of this letter to have assurance of faith, where might we start when we speak of God? For me, I would most likely start with love. God is love. That's where I would begin. It's a great and beautiful and wonderful truth. And he actually talks about this a few chapters from now, chapter four. He makes the declarative statement, God is love. God is the definition of love. But he doesn't start there. He starts, as we read in verse five, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. And I believe John begins with God is light because he understands something profound about those two statements, God is light and God is love. Because you see, in the context, what I believe John is referring to when he says God is light is that God is pure, he is holy. And John understands something specific about the love of God and that God's love is both pure and it's holy. Maybe I can explain this through somewhat of an illustration for parents in the room. Would it be loving of you if you watched your child, sat back, you sat back in a chair, watched your child with a fork in their hand, running around, point straight up, nearly hitting their eye all of the time, and they ran right over to an electric socket and started sticking it in the electrical socket? Would it be loving of you if you sat back, watched that happen, and you said, you know, I'm just kind of a hands-off parent. <laughs> if, if, I'm just going to let them do what they like. Whatever happens, happens. Or you're watching them from your, your back deck or in your yard, and you see a ball roll into the street, and the, the three-year-old goes running after it as cars zip by, and you're like, eh, just a hands-off. They'll learn their lesson if something bad happens to them. Would we say that's loving? Of course not. At best, it's indifferent. Likely, it's negligent. But that's not the love of God. The love of God is pure and it's holy. It's a passionate and it's a jealous love. It's not one that just stands by and says, just do whatever you want. 
I'll sit by idly. I'll just watch as you make a mess of your life. He's not just simply sitting in heaven, letting us wander through this maze of a life lost in the woods with little concern or little care for us. God's love is holy, it's pure, it's passionate, it's jealous. And if it wasn't jealous, it wouldn't be love. And what I mean by that is, I think we can give another example here. Husbands, if you saw another man flirting with your wife, would you just shrug your shoulders and go, eh, no big deal, it's fine. Wives, if you saw another woman flirting with your husband, would you just go, eh, I I take a hands-off approach to marriage. (laughs) No, If, if that was our response, to seeing that right in front of us, I think we can reasonably say we don't love our spouse. If our response is, I'm cool with that, flirt with them, do whatever. Husbands, if a man comes along and he demeans your wife, he speaks down to your wife, he verbally assaults and abuses your wife, and you just go, meh, not worried about it. I'm not worried about defending your character. I think we can rightly say that that's not love. There's there's no jealousy of that person's affection for you because in a marriage relationship, the husband and the wife, their love is for one another. And so when when that is being compromised by someone else, there should be a jealousy there. And so God's love is the same way in that he is jealous because his love is holy. Holy. His love is holy, and he's, he's displayed his love, as we know, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God become man, Jesus Christ. He died a death that we deserved. And he died that death so we can experience and we can know this holy, perfect, jealous love of God. And so where I say that God's love is jealous, and where I think it fits into the context of this idea of God is light and God is holy, is that Jesus invites us to come into him with all of our mess. He never says to you, clean yourself up and then come to me. He says, come to me with all of your mess. But here's where the the holiness and the love of God kind of meet, because he never says, I'm going to leave you in that mess. He says, come to me with all of your mess. Come to me with all of your sin. Come to me with all of your need, and I am going to help you out of it. Because of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done in the gospel. So an outpouring of his love is that he doesn't leave us where we are. And so for God in his jealousy and his love, it's such that he says, I can't leave you in darkness. You can't come to me with all of your mess and say, I want salvation, and then I just leave you in your mess. Because in my jealous love for you, I want you to live well and live right and live for me. So God demonstrates his love, and it is a holy, it is a righteous love. It is a genuine love. And it's a love that, as we'll see as we get into the text, calls us out of darkness and calls us into light. John's going to unpack this idea of God's holiness, God is light, by really 
drawing out these ethical and moral implications for our lives. So we're going to look really at three, three truths, you can say. The first one of them is this. True fellowship with God is evidenced when we walk in the light. True fellowship with God is evidenced when we walk in the light. Now, I want to make something clear. I'm not saying true evidence of God, true fellowship with God is obtained by walking in the light. True fellowship with God is evidenced by walking in the light. It, we, we showcase the fellowship that we have with God by walking in truth and walking in light and not walking in darkness anymore. If you notice the, the passage, we read through it, you will see in verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, there are these if statements, these conditional statements. And he's, he's walking through this passage, giving us these negative and these positive conditional statements. And what he wants to provide is there's a distinction between what is light and what is darkness. And you'll see when we get into what it looks like to walk in the light, there are consequences to that. And when we walk in the, in the darkness, there are consequences to that. So depending on which path we are on, which place we are living in, there are consequences, negative or positive, depending on which direction we're going. It's important for us to remember historical context here, because John's writing this book for a particular audience at a particular time, because in the church that he's writing to at this time, there was false teaching coming up. And those false teachers, they they had some odd teachings at different points. They had a, a thought and a belief and a perspective that they were teaching throughout the church that all things that are physical are evil, all things that are spiritual are good. And so that's why John spends the first four verses really explaining, no, the, the humanity and the deity of Christ is a genuine, a real thing because he's arguing against these false teachers at this time. So that's why John goes to the explicit point of like, we've touched this man with our hands. You can't deny the humanity of Jesus. You can't deny the deity of Jesus because we've touched God in the flesh. We've heard from him. In verses 6 through 10, he's also going to be arguing with them, against them, because they, they taught this as well. They believed that because of their faith in God, they no longer sinned. They believe that because of their faith in God, they no longer sinned. We would refer to that today as perfectionism. There's this belief that we ascend to this higher level of faith, this higher level of Christianity, where even wrong things I do aren't actually sin. So I can get angry. I can, I can fight with my family and get angry with them. I can do all these things. I can gossip behind people's backs. I can commit sin in various different ways, but it's not really sin because I've achieved a higher level of faith. That's what these people were teaching back in the first century. But John, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't stutter when he argues with them. He just simply says this in verse six. If you say you have fellowship with him and you walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. So false teachers, you want to say you have faith and that you're also saying on the other hand, but I don't sin? Sorry, you're liars. John's just being blunt. He's not holding back at all. We can say it like this. 
if you say you know God, if you say you claim Jesus for yourself, but you live in persistent, unrepentant sin, you are a liar. That's exactly what John's saying. This idea of walking in darkness is that. It's this persistent, unrepentant sin. It's this continual life of sin that you're not repenting of. That's what John means when he says walking in darkness. He says, if that's your life, you're a liar. You cannot claim Christianity and then not live as Christ has called us to live. Because remember what we said, God's love is holy. So the love of God being holy and us saying we embrace his love, it means that we can't live in unrepentant, persistent unholiness. Because we can't, that it, it doesn't work, it doesn't fit. You can't simply say, I have this righteous, holy love given to me and yet I don't live like that. And still make that claim. John says, you're a liar. Because God calls us to righteous living. He calls us to live in the light. I want to clarify a, a couple of terms and define a few things for us. When he says there, if we say we have fellowship with him, he's not talking about sometimes the way we think about fellowship, where it's just kind of like we get together and we have a meal and talk about how our day was going. This is a deep, intimate personal relationship that he's talking about. If you say you have fellowship with God, this is, a, this is a deep, personal, intimate thing. It's like having a friend that you tell everything to. You ever had a friend like that? You could just tell them everything, your deepest, darkest secrets, your deepest emotions, the way you've been hurt, your greatest joys. You share everything with that person. And John says, fellowship with God is like that. We come to him with our deepest emotions, our most painful hurts, our greatest joys, our personal thoughts, our immense need. And ultimately, the greatest need that we ever bring to God is the need for our sin to be forgiven. The greatest need we ever bring to God is our need for our sin to be forgiven. And so if fellowship with God is this intimate, personal relationship with him, I think we can rightly define walking in darkness as not bringing our sin, not bringing our need to God. So if we say we have this relationship and yet we never come to God with our sin, ultimately we're exposed for the liars that we are. And he says here, he says, you, you lie and we do not practice the truth. And, and what he's talking about is not practice in the sense of we practice basketball to get better with our jump shot, or we practice the piano to get better at a musical instrument. He's not talking about practice in that sense. What he's saying, he says, you do not practice the truth, is he's saying, you're not real. You're not being genuine. You're being fake. You're hiding behind a mask. It's like when... Bruce Wayne puts on the, the Batman mask and he makes his voice sound a little gravelier and everyone's like, oh, that's not Bruce Wayne anymore. It's kind of like that. Or the better example is probably Superman where it's like, he just kind of like combs his hair and puts on glasses and all of a sudden he's Clark Kent. And it's like, hold on a second. It's the same person. You're, you're not being true. You're not being genuine to yourself. 
because you lie and do not the truth. And when I say genuine to yourself, I don't mean this internal self-confidence that we have to be true to ourselves and who we are. It's, it's true to the reality that Jesus Christ is in us. If we claim that is true for us and we don't live it out, we never come to God with our sin, we never come to God with our need, we never show a dependence on him, we can't claim that to be true for us. And if you do claim it, you lie. You do not practice the truth. You are not being real. And again, I've said walking in darkness is this continual, persistent life of unrepentant sin. Now, what John's not saying is that every time we sin, every time we commit sin in our lives at one point in time, we would say, well, I'm just a liar. I'm walking in darkness again. It's, it's a matter of what is our response when we do sin? Is our response to repent? Is our response to just double down in our sin and persist in it? That's the important distinction. Because if we're confronted with our sin and we run to repent, I think we can rightly say we're not walking in darkness. We're doing what God would call us to do. We're walking in light. We're having our sin exposed and we're repenting of it and confessing it to God. Now, if we are discovered in our sin and we are confronted in it and we say, I'm not repenting of that. I don't, I don't need to repent of that. I'm good enough where I am. And we start to justify our sin. I think we could rightly say that's, that's not walking in the light. It's walking in darkness. John states the positive of this in verse 7. He says, but if, you, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it is possible to walk in the light. I know there are, there are Christians who struggle with this because they're like, I constantly feel like I'm always just beating myself up because I can never do enough to feel like I'm walking in fellowship with God. And it's like, it is a possibility. It is something we are capable of doing. Walking in the light is a real reality for us. We can do it. And again, it comes down to what do we do when we're confronted with our sin? Do we resist coming to God or do we pursue God? couple points I want to make here, then we'll move on to verses 8 through 10. There's a paradox in the Christian life. It's very interesting. And it, it sadly isn't always practiced in every church that I've been a part of, and maybe you've had the same experience, but I think it is practiced well here, and that's this. When we confess our sin and our need for Christ, the blessing that comes out of that is a greater intimacy with the people of God. For us at ECC, this happens in gospel-centered communities. It happens in women's Bible study, men's Bible study. It happens in personal relationships. And hopefully, at least what my experience has been in this church so far, is that when confession of sin takes place, it's met not with disdainfulness and side eyes and weird looks, but it's met with grace. It's met with encouragement in the gospel. And I think the prayer for all of us as we continue in this Christian life is that that would continue to be the flavor of our church when we see confession of sin. When someone confesses sin, it's like, okay, let's, let's give grace to that person. Let's encourage them with the gospel because that's what they need. 
They don't need to be shunned. They don't need to be looked down upon. They need to be encouraged with the gospel because they are seeking to walk in the light. They are seeking to walk in what's right. Second thing I want to point out before we move on, consider the language for a moment that John uses because it's, it's a little bit odd if you think about it. You look at verse six and he says, if you walk in darkness, you, if you say you have fellowship with him, you lie and walk in darkness, you lie and do not the truth. In verse seven, you would think he would say, if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, you have fellowship with God. But he doesn't say that. He says, you have fellowship with one another. What I think John means is ultimately this. Those who have fellowship with God will also have fellowship with one another. Saying it a different way, True fellowship with God, where we are united to him, where we are in him, will be expressed through fellowship with other believers. The, the life of walking in the light instead of walking with dark, in darkness is never done in isolation. The most dangerous place we can be as Christians oftentimes is when we isolate ourselves from everyone around us, isolate ourselves from the gospel presence and the grace that we can receive from people, and we just try to do this on our own. That's, the most, that's sometimes the most dangerous place we can be because it's oftentimes there where we fall into sin and we begin to walk in darkness. That's not to say, though, that, the, that walking in the light means we live a perfect life. We know that's not the case. It's far from it. If we're honest with ourselves, we are all sinful people. We've all done wrong. And John's, but remember, John's arguing against a group of people who believe that. They believe that they do not sin. They believe that they are perfect. So John's making this argument against them, and he's saying, we're not. We're not perfect people. All of us sin. And then we read verses 8 and 10. And he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Imagine with me for a moment that you are skydiving. Has anyone ever gone skydiving in here? Nobody. Good. Keep your feet on the ground. It's probably a safer place for all of us. Imagine with you for a moment you're skydiving. You've packed your parachute. You've put it in your bag. You've put it on your back. You're, you're ready to go. And you start to walk towards the open door that they slid open on the plane. And, and one of your friends who's gone with you says, hey, your, your parachute, it's all wrong. It, it's messed up. And you turn to them and say, I, I know how to pack a parachute. I've done it a million times. I'm good. Leave me alone. You start walking towards the door. Another person sees you and says, your, your parachute is all wrong. I know what's wrong. Let me fix it for you. You'll be good. No, no, no. I got it. I know how to pack a parachute. I'm good. Let me go. You get to the door. You're about to jump out. And the instructor says, you know, your parachute's all. And you just cut them off. Nope. Nope. People need to stop telling me that my parachute's wrong. I know it's right. I'm good to go. No problems. I've done this a million times. I'm good. You jump out of the plane. First couple thousand feet, feel great. Adrenaline rush. You're on the top of the world. You're seeing everything. You're going through clouds. You go and you, you start to tug 
on that parachute and it doesn't open. All of a sudden, that adrenaline rush is no longer like, this is incredible, this is a wonderful experience. Now it's terrifying. You are fearful for your life as you fall and fall and fall, and eventually that fall comes to an end. Friends, if you're telling yourself that you are not a sinner, I'm not too bad, I don't need a savior, I don't need my sins to be cleansed, I'm fine on my own, you are lying to yourselves. And John says the truth is not in you. And, and he's not talking about facts, he's not talking about declarations, he's not talking about truthful statements. Truth for John is the reality of Jesus. And he says, if you, are, if you are walking down this path saying you're perfect, saying you don't need to depend on God, you've lost touch with Jesus. You've lost touch with reality. And notice a progression here. If we claim faith, but yet we walk in unrepentance and believe ourselves to be perfect, verse 6 says we lie to others. Verse 8 says we lie to ourselves. Verse 10 says we lie not only about God, but we make him a liar. Why does he say that? It's because God has already declared everyone is a sinner. Everyone is in need of a savior. He sent his only son to die a death that we deserved for the forgiveness of sins. And so if we say, I don't need that, we're saying that God is a liar. We're saying that God is wrong. So friends, if anyone here believes themselves to just be fine as they are, you say, I'm good. I have no need of a savior. Consider me one of the friends on the plane who's saying your parachute's all wrong. It may feel wonderful for a time, but that time will come to an end, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying to wake up before a wrathful, holy, righteous God and not have your sin paid for. You do not know the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. This ultimately brings us to our second truth, and that's this. God will always meet confession and repentance of sin with forgiveness. God will always meet confession and repentance of sin with forgiveness. Let's read verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we read these words and they should bring comfort to us. They should bring comfort to us because they are wonderful words. And yet, I think sometimes many of us, when we think about the idea of confessing our sin to God, it doesn't bring us comfort. Instead, it brings us fear. We're afraid to confess our sins to God because we think God's just going to beat us upside the head. Tell us all the things we've done wrong and stomp us down. We develop this view that God is angry with us when we confess our sins, and so we're better off just hiding it. We're better off just keeping it hidden in the dark. But what does he say in verse 9? God is faithful. And, and it's not that he takes on faithfulness. It's not he just says, okay, you're confessing your sin. I'll, I'll bring on faithfulness now for a time, time being and I'll, I'll forgive your sins. He is the definition of faithfulness. So if we confess our sin to God and he were to turn away and not forgive us of our sins, he ceases to be God. Think about that for a moment. If we come to God in repentance and we confess our sins to him and he says, no, I'm going to stiff arm you and I'm not going to forgive you of your sin, he ceases to be God. 
because he wouldn't be faithful to himself. So his, his very nature, the being of God, who he is, is at the center of the forgiveness of our sins. We've said it already, but God sent Jesus Christ as the payment for the penalty of our sins. We can go elsewhere in the writings of Paul where he says that all of the promises of God find their what? Their yes and their amen in Christ. John wants us to be confident that we have eternal life. And so in confidence, we look to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to forgive sin. So then when we do sin and we come and we confess that sin to God and we repent, we can know full well with full assurance that we won't be met by a God who stiff arms us, but we will be met by a God who faithfully forgives us. It's a, it's a glorious and it's a wonderful truth to know that we can shake free from the burden of hiding our sin and worrying that God is angry with us and we can have relief that God will unburden us from our sin and forgive us of those things. What a relief it is to know that we can, we can come to God and not expect to be beaten upside the head or stiff-armed. We can come to God with full assurance that he will forgive. He doesn't just stop there, though. John brings in another attribute of God, and he says, if you confess your sins, he is not only faithful, but he is just to forgive us of our sins. The beauty of the gospel is that because of what Christ has done for us, we do not face the wrathful justice of God. He says to come and confess to him and that if he did not forgive, it would be unjust on his part. So again, God would cease to be God if he did not forgive a repentant sinner coming to him confessing their sin. It doesn't seem to make sense to us because oftentimes we think that justice has to do with what is right, what is righteous, and what is evil. And obviously we've sinned that makes us the unrighteous ones, and so we should expect punishment. We should expect the wrath of God to be poured out on us, and yet at the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where God's love and his justice meet. It meets in Jesus Christ who was killed for the sins of those in this world. And so this holy, this infinite, this righteous God, I think we can rightly say is at his most just when he forgives sin. This brings us to our third and our final truth. Christ's work is both our atonement and our advocate are the foundation and the basis for God's forgiveness of sin. So read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John states clearly his desire is that we would not sin. But I think it's safe to say that John would agree that all of us do sin. And he says, if you do, because John's a realist, he understands the reality of life, all of us sin, but if you do fall into sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what John wants us to understand is that when we do fall into sin, because we will 
Do not grow discouraged. Do not throw in the towel. Do not quit. Do not give up in this life. Because remember, John's writing us for what purpose? So that we may know that we have eternal life. So God's forgiveness of our sin is based first on Christ's work as our atonement. We see that in verse 2. John uses a word that we don't use very much anymore. It's propitiation. The word carries this idea. Christ's atoning sacrifice appeases the wrath of God. So the wrath of God that was meant for us, Jesus' death covers that. We have a just and a holy God ready to punish and condemn sin. And Jesus says, no, I will take that punishment. The wrath that was meant for them, I will take. I will endure that for the sins of the world. But, but I don't want to get this twisted because it's easy to do and some people have. Some people have described this idea of the atonement, this idea of Jesus appeasing the wrath of God as cosmic child abuse. Where a, a vengeful father is taking out his anger on an innocent son who did no wrong. The reality of the gospel and what is true, and we don't have time to look at it verse by verse in scripture, is that both father and son are united. They are in lockstep with the plan of salvation. There's no disunity in God. There is no abuse in God. There is mutual love and affection between father and son. And what they design to do together in unity is to extend their love to the world through Jesus Christ coming and dying on our behalf. Now, when we sin, God looks at our sin and he says, if you are in Jesus, I no longer see your sin. I see Jesus' sacrifice for you. In his faithfulness, in his justice, he says, I see Jesus' sacrifice for you and I declare you forgiven. Yet we continue to sin when we are called to be mature, called to a deep, mature level of holiness where we obey God. Have you ever been caught doing something that you shouldn't? Maybe even questioned about something that you shouldn't have been doing. Think back to your days as a child. It happened for me all the time. Baseball flies through the window of the house. Parents come storming down. And if we didn't make it out of the room in time, because we typically would run away, the questions start to fly. Who did what? Who did this? What are you guys doing? What are you thinking? And what is your initial response? You got to defend yourself, right? Uh, my brother threw the ball way over my head. There was no way I was going to catch it. It's his fault. Then my brother turns around. Well, he doesn't know how to catch. So that's why the ball went through the window. Never mind the fact that we're throwing a baseball in the house, but that's another story for another time. We did do that often. We get into this mode where we start to defend ourselves, and we do that with sin too. We do that with God too. We explain it away. We excuse it. We minimize it before God. And yet John says... In verse 1 of chapter 2, there's a better way. You don't need to come to God with your sin and try to be your own defender, try to be your own advocate. He says, you have an advocate with the Father already, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. Every time we sin, every instance that we sin in our life, Jesus stands to defend us. There are, there are two views of of, of Jesus' character with this. One is intercession, one is advocacy. Intercession is the idea that he has once for all 
a one-time thing, stood and said, I make intercession on behalf of these people who love me, who have faith, who I have chosen. Advocacy is a continual thing, not just a one-time thing, where every time we sin, he is continually before the Father making a defense for us. I just want to consider how freeing is that? How freeing is it that we don't need to come to God confessing sin, but also making excuses for it? We don't have to come to God saying, well, I sinned, but I'm actually a pretty good person, God. My good things outweigh my bad things. You know, I do more good stuff than I do bad stuff. We don't need to come to God and say, yeah, I sinned, but look at all the righteous stuff I do too. And, and that righteousness should give me a little bit of, of good grace with you. The beauty of the advocacy of Christ is that we simply leave our case before God in the hands of Jesus. It's like walking into a courtroom. And instead of us standing before the judge trying to figure out how to defend ourselves, we hand our case over to the greatest lawyer there could ever be, the person of Jesus. And he stands before the ultimate judge, God the Father, and he says, this life, this sin, I've paid for all of that. John Bunyan says it better than I could, and so I'll read his quote to finish up. It's a long one, so I'm going to put it up on the screen. Hopefully you can read that. Christ gave for us the price of blood, but that is not all. Christ as a captain has conquered death and the grave for us, but that is not all. Christ as a priest intercedes for us, but that is not all. Sin is still in us and with us and mixes itself with whatever we do, whether what we do is be religious or civil. For not only our prayers and our sermons, our hearings and preaching, but our houses, our shops, our trades, and our beds are all polluted with sin. Not does the devil, our night and day adversary, forbear to tell our bad deeds to our Father, urging that we might be forever disinherited for this. But what should we now do? If we had not an advocate, yes, if we had not one who would plead, yes, if we had not one who would prevail and that would faithfully execute that office for us, why we must die. That's the reality if Jesus isn't our advocate. The only response to the accusations of the devil and the accusations of our own sinful flesh is that we would die in the presence of God. But here's what he says. But since we are rescued by him, let us, as to ourselves, lay our hand upon our mouth and be silent. When we sin, rather than seeking to defend ourselves before God, let us bring our unrighteousness to the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who appeased God's wrath through his death and just sit in silent wonder, sit in silent amazement, silent awe, as not us, but he stands to defend us. This is why we have full assurance of faith, because we have an advocate who has atoned for us before a holy God who sees that atonement and he hears Christ's advocacy and he says to us, forgiven. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that we are forgiven. Thank you that you are faithful, you are just, and you perfectly display those attributes to us and for us so that we would not be condemned. Father, as we celebrate communion together, let us rejoice in your love for us in, the, in Christ and ultimately remember his sacrifice for us.
Amen.